Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be looking at verse 15. And as you're doing that, let's once again go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we need your help to understand your word, to see Jesus high and lifted up. Help us as we begin this new series in the season of Advent to love you, and to know you, and to serve you better. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite commercials, well, maybe not favorite, but the one they keep playing, is the, is the Target Lady. You know what I'm talking about? The Target Lady in the red jumpsuit who's marking off the days of her calendar, and she's running on the elliptical machine, and she's doing it backwards at level 12. She's going up through the mountains, and she is shopping through Target, and she's going down the aisles, and she's using all the strategies she knows to try and figure out to be prepared. This is a lady who, though insane, is ready. And it got me thinking. If you peel back all the commercialism, if you peel back all the wish lists, despite all the turkeys and holiday festivals, despite the advanced booking of airfare or other travel plans, there is still something unexpected about Christmas even if we've been expecting it for months. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ still catches our breath. The babe lying in a manger, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, born into poverty and raised by a carpenter, angels appearing to shepherds, powerful kings and emperors quaking at the birth of his child, a virgin who cares more about the word of prophecy than she does about the culture around her. Christmas is surprising because grace is. Grace is unexpected. Grace is undeserved. Christmas and Advent is undeserved. This is particularly true of the first prophecy of the coming of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to consider here briefly this morning the surprising context, the surprising content, and the surprising culmination of the coming of the Messiah. These words of hope and promise come in a surprising way. Genesis three thirteen through 15. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. First, the surprise of its context. What had God done? God, who was under no obligation in and of himself. God, who out of sheer mercy and a desire to share his holy character with the entire world, created a world in six days. And he made it all good. And he clothed the grass and the lilies of the field. And he made the sea and the oceans in its depths. He made all the living things that crawl on the earth or swim in the sea. All the birds that soar over the air. He made it all. And then he crowned it by making one creature whose sole purpose is to reflect him. To have dominion over what he has created. To serve him. As our catechism tells us, to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. 
That was his purpose. And that was his privilege. But in Genesis 3, an animal, a serpent, enters into a conversation. And he causes doubt. And he causes skepticism. This person who had what the Hebrews call shalom, peace and wholeness of life, the serpent said, you're missing out. God is holding back on you. And he deceives Adam and Eve by twisting God's word, by telling them that obedience to God is missing out on the really good stuff in life. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. That the way to happiness is to disobey. This is an animal whom man is supposed to have authority over. And he is dictating the terms. He is asking them to doubt God, to believe that he is holding out on you. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever asked that in your mind or in your heart, in a dark place or in a trial, in the midst of pain or sadness or grief? He said, you can be like him. Adam and Eve should have laughed in his face. They already were like him. They were, had the very image of God. They were made in his image. And yet they believed the hiss of the serpent and they committed cosmic treason. Martin Luther said this. He said, you can't break any of the commandments until you've broken the first one. You shall not have any other gods. In other words, you can't commit adultery, you can't lie, you can't cheat, you can't steal, you can't covet, you can't worship material things until you have already dethroned God in your heart. And that's what Adam and Eve had done. They, who were made in His image, believed the hiss and committed cosmic training. They were warned that the path of disobedience leads to death, and death they deserved. God had given them everything. And yet they chose the shame and the loneliness and the pain and the nakedness of sin over the joy, over the peace, and over the glory of a life lived in perfect communion with God. So the Lord showed up. He appeared to them. Now we should expect at this point God to be swift in His judgment and in His justice. He warned them, You eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you will surely die. We should expect it to be over. But he doesn't. It's surprising not only what God says, but the way he does it. He enters into a dialogue with his creation. And he exhibits the patient, patience and love of a father for a child. The dialogue goes something like this. Adam, where are you? Now did God couldn't find Adam and Eve? No. He knew where they were. But Adam and Eve had yet to discover exactly where they have gone and how far they've fallen. Who told you that you were naked? God knows. But Adam and Eve need to come to the realization of where they truly are before they can be put back on the path of promise and redemption and healing. He's dialoguing with them. Indeed, Adam needed to know where he was. The Lord will often work in our lives like this. Don't be afraid to question God, but also don't be afraid when God questions you. Where are you at? What is it you've done? 
Who told you that you were naked? See, unless we figure how far we've fallen, we cannot appreciate the depths of which Jesus Christ enters and the depths of the promise to bring us back home again. It's a surprising context. But the Lord then turns to the serpent. And by the way, the serpent and Satan are interchangeable here. Satan has taken the form of a creature. But make no mistake about it, who is, who is playing the pawns here? It's Lucifer, the fallen angel, who wanted to be like God. Whose temptation to Adam and Eve, he himself was guilty of. He wanted to be God. It's the heart of every sin, isn't it? We try to play God. We try to control Satan will not win. God talks to Satan and the serpent. Notice he doesn't dialogue with the serpent like he dialogued with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. His judgment is swift. His words are harsh and he doesn't play around. He says, Cursed are you, cursed to the ground. You shall crawl on your belly. Not just simply slithering around as if the serpent before had four legs and now he's banished to slide around around the dust of the earth. No, it's deeper than that. The serpent is going to have to crawl. The serpent is going to be humiliated. The serpent who believes at this moment that he's won. Satan's goal was not only to break the bond of God's creation. His goal was to win their worship. And in their their worship of Satan... He will utterly destroy them. That's his goal. Satan just doesn't want to keep you from God. He wants to own you. And in owning you, he wants to eradicate you. Of all the peace and the joy that they have. He is seeking offspring. And he can only have them by winning people over in his influence. By getting them to doubt and to believe that God has not your best interest in mind and heart. Yet he's not going to win. Already, we know the end of the story. We're not even four chapters into the scriptures. And we know who gets to win. At the outset of the scriptures, long before the cross, long before Revelation 22, we learn that ultimately Satan will fail in his core mission. The plans of God will not be thwarted. Satan is without any hope. Satan is without any promise. God does not reason with him. He is not the physician like he is with Adam and Eve seeking his redemption. And so the surprising context of the first prophecies in the scriptures tell us that Jesus' victory is absolutely assured. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how lonely it gets, no matter how much it might look in the world as if evil and Satan is winning, his defeat is assured. He will crush his heel, or he will strike his heel. But God's anointed Messiah will crush his head. God wins in the end. The surprise of its content. What a blessing these words. Not only will God bring us all things worthy and good in Jesus Christ, but the context also shows us that God's plan of redemption also involves bringing judgment and enmity from the one who seeks our destruction. As I said before, he's not speaking for the benefit of the serpent. He's speaking so that Adam and Eve and those of us who, fall, who come after them, their posterity, our descendants, so we can hear these words, so we can know what God is up to, what he is doing. 
God enters into no dialogue. And it reminds us that sin is miserable. And this is the gift of God as well. Sin is miserable. As James Montgomery Boyce, who is a pastor, said, We would like to go to hell happy, comfortable, wealthy, and with ease, like an addict in the midst of self-destruction in a downward spiral. God puts enmity between us and that reality. He puts the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is both plural and singular because he's talking about generations. This is what theologians call two-seed theology. People aren't divided in humanity by Republican and Democrat, poor and rich, male and female, Jew and Greek, Yankees and, well, I won't say. People aren't divided like that. The Bible tells us that there's only one division. The seed of the woman, which is an analogy here for the chosen and elect of God, and the seed of the serpent. Those who want nothing to do with God's kindness. Those who want nothing to do with God's grace. Those who want nothing to do with His gospel. And this is a gift. Sin is miserable. Sin destroys. Sin separates. This is not to warn you to be legalistic or to be moral and just try harder. It's lovingly telling us sin will wreck your heart. Sin will wreck your life. It'll mess you up. It'll kill you. God is not a killjoy. Sin is. Because sin robs and steals joy and satisfaction. Sin always promises happiness. But it never delivers. It can't. Because the only thing that makes us happy is being in a relationship with Almighty God. And sin would seek to separate us from that reality. But God's going to defeat all that. God is going to end all that. He's going to destroy this enemy. But we're given a warning here. Beware of what sin can do. Look what it's going to take to defeat this enemy. His defeat is assured. He will not win. God will. But the rest of the Bible is the story of how this prophecy is fulfilled. You know, a lot of times we think of Old and New Testament, and that's true, and that's good. But really, thematically, you can divide the Scriptures between Genesis 1 and 3.14, and then Genesis 3.15 to Revelation 22. Because everything else in the drama of the Scriptures is simply how God is going to bring about this fulfillment. How's He going to do it? How's He going to defeat the enemy? He's going to do it by sending a person. By sending... His son. Not ten chapters later do we meet a man named Abraham. And through Abraham a family is born. So numerous the stars of heaven can barely number their heritage. This family shall become a nation who experience the bitterness of slavery and the glory of Exodus. Who wander and rebel and divide and even go into exile. From this nation, from this family of broken promises, one is born in Bethlehem who is faithful where his ancestors have been unfaithful. And he is born in order to die, to have his heel struck in order that he might crush the head of he who deceived humanity. Sin will not last. Pain for God's people is not forever. 
This prophecy is pregnant with grace. And it's exploding with promise. God is going to win. And He's going to begin to unfold His plan to bring this all about. You know, this prophecy also means in the defeat of evil that in our being released from its uh, captivity implied is our return to paradise. How do we get back? How do we get home again? How do we get put right to even better than what Adam and Eve had seen in the Garden of Eden? Because for us, paradise will have no chance of temptation or sin or ever falling away ever again. You know, I, we all love Christmas. I do. It's one of my favorite times of the year. The snow, I come from Ohio. When we do get a snow, which we've gotten one every year I've lived here, so if you don't like snow, it could be Diane and I move south. But the snow, I love the um, pageantry of Christmas. I love the food of Christmas. I love Christmas trees and carols and all the good stuff that we're going to celebrate tonight, by the way, at Highlands Family Christmas. I love all of that. What I love even more than that is what Jonathan Edwards said about heaven. He said, To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is finally better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the ocean. And this is surprising. This is surprising because we are no longer surprised by grace. Grace should surprise us. But we're often more surprised by justice and judgment and holiness in the scriptures. When God deals with his people as their sins deserve, we are shocked. But the good news of the scriptures is that ultimately and in Christ, he doesn't. He doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve. He gives grace and He gives mercy. He is already unfolding this plan to bring about our salvation. This should be shocking. God is going to crush the enemy of the people of God. He's going to crush sin and the power of death and the power of hell and the power of evil. He's going to do it all. That's grace. Unmerited. Unexpected, unanticipated. You can't plan for it. We should have expected God to come and Adam and Eve and say, You rebelled. Here's the penalty. But He is so full of love, He is so full of mercy, and He is so kind that He is going to do the most surprising thing of all. He's going to give us a gift greater than anything you'll get under the Christmas tree this year. He's going to give the gift of himself. He's going to give the gift of his person. Because that's what we need. You don't need your stock market portfolio to improve. You don't need an easier job. You don't need a better spouse. What you need is Jesus. Because he alone brings redemption. He alone brings us to the fountain of life. He alone brings God, Emmanuel. He is with us. That's what we need. 
And Satan believed he'd won. He believed he got the crown of all creation, made in the image of God, to turn away from him and to spurn his benefits and to respurn his person and character. But all right away. Isn't it interesting how the first time God ever preaches his gospel and word is to the evil one? Let there be no mistake about who's in control. Let there be no mistake about who's going to ultimately win. God. And in so doing, He is going to bring you and me back from the pit of despair. Back from the darkness of despondency. He will win. And we will praise Him and we will worship Him forevermore. It's surprising content. Come in the midst of words of judgment against the serpent. That is our hope. We've seen its surprising context. We've seen its surprising content. Let's now look at the surprise of its culmination. Nobody expected the king to come like this. We learn who the he of Genesis 3 is in Luke chapter 3. On this side of the history of redemption, we now know how his heel was bruised. He was abandoned. He was cursed. He was stripped of any shred of cultural dignity. He was humiliated and mocked. We scorned him. And he died a criminal's death. The only innocent person who ever lived in all of humanity died a criminal's death. The only person who could say, this is not fair, God. The only person who could say, I don't deserve this. The only person who said, I deserve better and more. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and became obedient, even obedient upon the death of a cross. Oh, for the cross. The only innocent person who ever lived. I don't know, but I imagine that Satan had forgotten Genesis 3.15 in the darkness of Calvary. Satan believed he had won. He was successful in bruising his heel. But in the triumph of resurrection, Jesus Christ defeated the power of sin. He defeated the power of death. And he defeated the eternal separation from God for those who would love him and simply trust that he is who he claimed to be. You don't have to work harder. You don't have to do more. All you have to do is come to the manger and bow down and acknowledge that this is exactly what he came for. This is who he is. It's going to be what we'll be looking at more closely together these next few weeks of Advent. Roots of Jesse, Lion of Judah... What good can come out of Nazareth? I only wish to deal with one point here. Namely, that the victory of Jesus Christ is greater than the disobedience of Adam in this respect. Adam's rebellion affected all of creation in the here and now and on this earth. But the victory of Jesus Christ in crushing the head of the serpent is final, it is total, and it is forever. Jesus Christ on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then later, it is finished. What was finished? Genesis 3.15. The mission of Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled. Redemption has been accomplished. 
Jesus Christ has not just put us back into the garden and given us the opportunity now to earn our salvation. He's won it by His life and perfect obedience. He was the true Adam. He was what Adam should have been. He's what you and I should have been. He lived the life that we should have lived in obedience to a just and holy God. But instead, He as well took the death that we deserve to die. He died in our place. He died for you. He died for me. Everything you've ever done. I don't care how bad you've gotten. I don't care what you've said. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how dark it's gotten in your life. The light of the world, Emmanuel, still comes to this very day and says, I love you. I forgive you for those who are willing to trust and believe. That's why his heel was struck. That's why he had to crush the head of the serpent. Redemption is accomplished. He took the curse. And he cried out on the cross that he was forsaken from his father so that you and I never have to be. We'll never know that pain. We'll know depths of loneliness, sure. As we said, sin is miserable. We know its effects. But those who are in Christ never know a God who forsakes them or abandons them. He does not leave us. And He never will. No matter how dark it gets along the way. And it got very dark for Jesus. Go to Mark 14 and see our Savior sweating blood. It's agonizing. Jesus has been there. Jesus knows. And Jesus is our redemption accomplished for us. He struck and crushed the head of the serpent. Every one of us is an Adam. We've all sinned and we've all rebelled. But by the sheer grace of Almighty God, some of us are in Christ. And some of us know His love and the richness of His grace and His character and His person. I'll read to you from Romans five, fifteen. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man... How much more did God's grace and the gift that man that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? How much more the grace? Jesus is coming. How much more the grace? And so the surprise culmination of Genesis 3.15, the surprise culmination of the very Christian life, is that Jesus Christ is not the means to an end. He is the end. Jesus Christ won't make you richer financially. He won't make your life any easier. He won't make Christmas more festive. If by festive you mean Black Friday deals, big turkeys, and getting your own way, getting what you want. But He is the end in that He is the giver who is greater than all the good gifts. Better to know Him than to know anything else. Better to love Him. The Apostle Paul, who wrote from chains and in bondage, said, I count everything else as not worth even to be compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Paul says, you can bring out the balance sheets if you want, but they're not even worth comparing. We're not even talking upon the same scale here. 
Do you know Him? Are you surprised by Him? Are you surprised that He has come? Is He unexpected? Because when He comes into your heart and into your life, overflowing with such mercy and truth and joy, we are overwhelmed. We cry out in praise and in worship. Christmas is surprising. Because Genesis 3.14 should have been the end of the story. It should have been the end of the human experiment. But God is so rich in mercy and in love. He is a God of justice as well as grace that He sent His only Son into the world. Talk about a surprising reality. The most famous passage in all the Bible still shocks me. Does it surprise you? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall never perish but have eternal life. Christian, if you are trusting Christ, you will never perish. I promise you. The river may rise. The tides might feel like they're coming into the boat. You might feel weary. You might feel run down. You might feel exhausted this Christmas. But you will not perish. God, who began a good work in your heart, who began unfolding this entire plan of redemption back in Genesis 3.15, will see you to the end. He's going to bring you home. He's going to bring you to Himself. You can bank on it. And that's what we're looking at in this series on prophecy. God foretold hundreds of years before Jesus was ever even born that this is exactly what's going to happen. And if He did it then, how much more will He bring the entire plan to fruition? One piece of advice for Christmas as we close is if you're no longer surprised by God, and if you're no longer surprised by grace, I want you to try this. Give up. Give up trying to control your life. Give up trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Give up trying to earn your own way. Give up trying to please everyone around you. Give up, give up, give up thinking that there is something more important in this world, in your life, or in the lives of anyone else around you that matters more than someone knowing this coming Messiah who crushed the head of the serpent. Give it all up. And in giving it up, flee to the manger first. Bow down with the host of heaven in praise and adoration, but don't stop there. Keep going to the cross of Calvary and stay a while. Watch as the Savior bleeds. Watch as He dies. Watch as He's mocked and humiliated. It was our sin that nailed Him there. But He is there getting His heel struck so that He, in crushing the head of the serpent, might bring us with Him that as He goes to the very gates of hell, He opens the doors to heaven to all who would trust Him. And live for Him. That's what's so shocking. That's what's so surprising. Not an easy life. Not even a good life in a cultural stance. What's surprising is that God loves us enough to go through all of this. Just to bring us home. He says to the serpent, you will strike his heel. But he will crush your head. Jesus has won the victory. Jesus is alive today. And He is ruling and He is reigning. And guess what? He's coming again. 
He's not finished with you, and He's certainly not finished with me. He will bring us home. And that's better than anything in a stocking. That's better than anything under a tree. That is life, and life forevermore. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, how surprising and how wonderful Emmanuel is that you have come into our world, that you have taken flesh of our flesh, that you have lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve to die. Oh Lord, would this prophecy about the coming of one individual who will have his heel struck, but who will crush the serpent, may that prophecy give us hope that we too, who like sheep have gone astray, are loved, are cared for, and like Him, will live and reign victorious forevermore, no matter how dark it gets. The light of Your person shines so brightly in our midst. And we thank You and praise You for this in Your Son's holy name. Amen.